This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Acharya Shunya. Shunya is an expert in Ayurveda lifestyle medicine and has established Vedaka Global, the award-winning school of Ayurveda and Vedic studies in Emeryville, California. She is also the current president of the California Association of Ayurvedic Medicine and advisor to the Association of Ayurvedic Professionals of North America. With Sounds True, Shunya has written a new book called Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom, a complete prescription to optimize your health, prevent disease, and live with vitality and joy. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Shunya and I spoke about the misconception that health is a commodity, and instead the Ayurvedic view that we cultivate our health by aligning with the rhythms of nature through living an Ayurvedic lifestyle. We also talked about the wisdom of the ancient rishis and the universality of the Vedic teachings, as well as the portability and adaptability to different places and cultures. Finally, we talked about how hopelessness is a disease that precedes all symptoms and what it means not just to live with hope, but with what Shunya calls an infinity mindset. Here's my conversation with Acharya Shunya. Shunya, I know you have an unusual background and that even certain predictions were made at the time of your birth. And I wonder if we can start our conversation right there and if you could share with our listeners a little bit about your birth and background. Tammy, I was born to a family that's renowned in northern India for being teachers of ancient Vedic spirituality, which includes the Upanishads, which teach about a spiritual self that transcends the body and mind, and it is universal. All of us share that one self. It also advocated yoga as a path to a beautiful ascended mind. And then, of course, Ayurveda lifestyle, so that we could live the spirituality and not just talk about it. And apparently, this family has been involved in this work of disseminating this precious wisdom for not just a couple of hundred years, but thousands of years. And there I was, this little baby, born into this illustrious family. And... uh, My grandfather, uh, who was at that time a very renowned teacher and healer in our small town called Ayodhya, a holy city, a pilgrimage town in India, and he held me and he named me Shunya. And uh, 
everybody rejoiced. And I'm sure my soul heard that name too. And Shunya means infinity, Tammy. And as we all know that the Vedic Indians gifted the world the concept of zero, which means infinity. Except that um, in common parlance, some children would tease me as I grew up because Shunya is also the word used for zero. And it also means your intelligence is zero. So anytime I didn't um, exactly perform the way my peers expected me to, as in breaking fruit from the tree or, you know, not running fast enough or not doing well enough in school, the kids would smear and say, of course, but you are Shunya. And it was not very complimentary. But then uh, gradually, through the teachings of my guru and through my own life experiences, I am beginning to embody what Shunya really means and touching that infinite self within. And that infinite self has taught me that I can reinvent myself again and again. And that I don't come, I don't approach anything in life from a fixed mindset, including health. I approach it from an infinity mindset. And that is what I'm on about now. And the spiritual lineage uh, in 1935 opened its doors to the girl child all over again. The way it was back in the ancient Vedic days when the women scholars and sages were known as Rishikas or Brahmavadini. And my Baba, my beloved grandfather, my teacher said, enough, we are going to open this classroom, this gurukulam, this traditional school to every worthy soul, every seeker with a quest in their heart. So long before I was born, almost three decades before I was born, we already had um, students um, who were in the female body with my grandfather. And then he chose me. We had multiple cousins. We lived in a joint family. I had male cousins too. They studied along me, but then at uh, at age 24, he decided that I would be the lineage holder and I would take this wisdom forward. And it made more sense why he chose me now when I look back, because when I was born, within minutes of my being born, he predicted that I would travel abroad to the other side of the world, create a foundation of Vedic wisdom and education and spread that wisdom from my heart. And you know, Tammy, when I was growing up, I didn't even know what the Western direction meant. What does a foreign country mean? So I was just busy leading my life. And then karmic situations, no special effort has brought me here. And I'm talking to you right now. And I believe I've written a book, Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom for a World Audience. Now, you were the first person in your family lineage to travel and begin teaching outside of India. Is that correct? That is correct. And, you know, I want to talk more to you about this infinity mindset. I think that's very important. But before we do, you mentioned your guru, and you also talked about your grandfather. Your grandfather was your guru, your teacher, yes? That is right. My grandfather was a guru to hundreds, and he was also my guru. Tell me a little bit about him. I know in the book you refer to him as 
Baba, and there's so much affection. And you even go so far as to say that the teachings in the book are the teachings you received through him, and that his energy, if you will, his brilliance, his genius is pouring through you into the book. So I'd love to know more about your relationship with him and what he was like. What was he like? I'm still trying to get around to it. He was clearly a spiritually realized being, and uh, he was a householder saint. Our lineage is um, what is known as a grihastha sadhu in Sanskrit, which means householder sages. So he spent several years in the Himalayas, but then his father, my great-grandfather, said, now let me see you find the Himalayas back home here amongst your people, amongst the work you have to do as a householder. And so we believe in um, touching our spiritual peak, ourselves, amidst urban life or amidst normal life, what is normal to us and the course of affairs. And Baba came back from the Himalayas, but uh, he remained internally in a peak, in a, in a state of God consciousness. So he was a householder. He went about, uh, you know, taking care of the people who came to him for healing, for advice, for blessings. He also raised his sons. One of them was my father. And he took a special liking to me, probably because I lost my mother when I was 10. But even prior to that, he had chosen me as a student and he paid attention to me. And apparently, Tammy, he had these very adult conversations with me around spirituality and God and infinity and health and to never give up on hope and that I can be who I want to be. For example, if he'd walk to the river, we wouldn't just look at the fishes and exclaim with joy. He would say to me, and I've written that in the book, like, you know, now like the river, you know, follow your true course and don't stop until you reach the ocean. And I don't know if I understood him completely, but apparently my soul was listening because I'm still understanding him. And I'm so grateful that he didn't talk down to me. He just addressed me like I'm this 50-year-old woman walking next to him, a 90-year-old man. <laughs> and that was it. We had these profound conversations and they come back to me through my waking experience, my dream experiences, when I'm talking, when I'm teaching, when I open an ancient text that I've not opened for 20 years, I will open that very page and I will hear him explaining every word to me. So I was apparently karmically blessed to be with him and he prepared me for some work. And many times when I'm lost, Tammy, I just close my eyes and I trust. I trust myself the way my guru trusted me. And then the rest of it is history. It's a flow. Mm -hmm. And that's how I wrote the book. Now, I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about your name, Shunya. And you talked about how this word, Shunya, Shunyata, both relates to the mathematical idea of zero and infinity. And I wonder if you can share with us a little bit more your understanding of this sense of zero, or you could say emptiness, nothing there, and infinity, which goes out endlessly in space, no end. 
Yeah, I would love to do that because it has become a central uh, springboard of my own life. And uh, what I have done is embraced a kind of emptiness, which is the emptiness of the ego, of the contents of the mind. And I have noticed that there is a potent emptiness. And when I touch that space within me, when I become empty of the concepts and the deductions and the projections of my mind, I am able to touch something infinite within me. And in fact, I've begun teaching how to do that. And that is the whole aspect of infinity mindset towards health, where we don't feel like there's this health is this static phenomena and we're going to just lose it with every encounter with cold, cough, disease, trauma, and accidents. But that we can actually recreate it again and again every day by knowing about this infinite emptiness. So can emptiness be infinite? And then we go back to the Upanishads, these ancient texts, which then talk about this beautiful story between, once again, a father, the guru, and the disciple, who is his son. And the father says, you know, bring me that uh, banyan seed in yonder. And the child brings it. And the father says, break it open. The child breaks it open. And um, the father says, the guru says, what do you see? And the child says, It's empty. And that's the lesson. He says, the father says, this great tree, the banyan, emerged from an empty seed. In the same way, your true essence, spirit, it is invisible. And yet, it contains everything within it. So again and again, I have had to let go of identifications around a personality, an adaptive self, which my mind and the stories have created. I even forget on a daily basis that I belong to a lineage or I am from, you know, this country or that place. Those are all fascinating facts about my bodily self. But really, I keep trying to reclaim my empty self, the shunyata, this um, potent emptiness within me before it becomes filled with anything else, Tammy. And I'm enjoying talking about this to you. I can feel that you're really getting what I'm saying because you understand this at the deepest level. Well, I love this phrase, potent emptiness, because I think often when people fall into spaces that they experience as you could say, a sense of no reference point, or they're not sure what to believe, there's a sense of darkness. Sometimes they don't experience it as potent. They experience it as deficient in some sense, like the way you were teased, you know, zero, zero, you're not good enough. There's this deficiency. And I'm wondering how you could help people shift their mindset into experiencing the potency instead of the sense of lack? Hmm. The spirit cannot be seen with physical eyes. And yet this non-manifest essence leads to everything that is manifest. So therefore, perhaps 
in my entire Vedic teachings and the essence of everything I have learned from my guru and my own journey, a very potent learning that I've had, Tammy, is the learning of saying, neti, neti, not that, not that. What does it mean? I would rather be a zero. I would rather be deficient. I would rather be empty. I would rather be anything that people want to call me. But when people tell me who I am, I don't believe them. That is the truth of who I am and how I would suggest people to be. I just want them to focus within on that inviolable, incorruptible, and beautiful, ultimate, complete essence and entertain the possibility of the existence of a supra being within that family. And it is empty. It's empty for a reason. Because if it's filled with content, including depression, sadness, or even joy, or, you know, human deciphered worthiness, then it is stuffy. I would rather be empty. And people can call me deficient all they want. But I know that I am the magician. I know that I can be who I want to be. I have permission. I have expanse. I have space. And I own this emptiness. I protect it. I am the guardian of my own infinity. Mm. And thank you very much. I'd like it to be empty. Tell me what you mean by that, that you're the guardian and the protector. That's intriguing to me. Well, you know, when we live in the, you know, when you're a monk, I'm a monk at my heart, and I live in the world of people, relationships, concepts, ideologies. I find that all of this is being pushed towards me to take it on in some way and become that including having a lineage to belong to. Well, then the world wanted to tell me how I should belong to a lineage. How does a Vedic master dress? How do they behave? How do they talk? But I remembered my guru saying that never follow the word, really live the spirit. So therefore, I have become a guardian of this emptiness, this potent emptiness, because I ultimately will decide, Tammy, how I am going to be, how I will behave. And that's why people around me know that I can say no at any time, and I mean it, and I'll say it with love, and I'll walk away with love. Similarly, when I say yes, it has a flower that has bloomed in my emptiness, and I offer it with my entire being. So I do not... Uh, go in for any coercion. I'm looking at all parts of me. It's not like I've arrived. It's an ongoing journey, I would say. And any times I feel that my emptiness has is causing me suffering, then it became stuffed up with people wanting to stuff me or subconsciously or unconsciously, you know, facts, figures, phenomena, uh, opinions, um, you know, they entered my emptiness. And that's when I remember that I'm the custodian. I'm my cheerleader. And that's when I go into meditation. That's when I start writing. That's when I start. I have written books just for me. 
because those are that's my my scriptures for me where which i will never reveal to the world it was enough for my eyes to see them because that is what my emptiness wanted to grow so that's where i'm a custodian so i guess i walk tall and i walk free and that's my attempt at least every day oh my i am so inspired walk tall walk free what a fierce woman you are you're uh, totally making my day shunya i'm enjoying this so much now we've talked we bringing that out i i want to bring that out with you I want to bring that out. It's true. And in many ways, our conversation has started in the deep end, if you will, of this infinity mindset. And that's fine with me. What I want to do is now apply that infinity mindset, if you will, to this topic of your new book, The Lifestyle Wisdom of Ayurveda. And what are the core principles, if you will, of lifestyle wisdom. It seems like you already are pointing to a spiritual principle that's at the root, this, you know, coming from emptiness, trusting yourself, not letting other people stuff you with their ideas. But I know there are many principles that you'll language in your own way, and that's what I'd like to know. I'd like to preface it with um, something that I want to share with you and our listeners today, Tammy, I guess the first step is to become aware that, you know, possessing health is a matter of mastering a spiritual art. It's not just a stroke of luck or perfecting a technology, you know. If we want to have health, we must proceed to learn all about cultivating health. I mean, something like in the way we would learn any other art say, music, writing, poetry, ceramics, or even woodwork. But, you know, there are all these misconceptions and falsehoods that keep us from approaching and least of all mastering this art. And the biggest misconception is that, you know, health is a fixed commodity. And this leaves us in a pretty hopeless and pessimistic condition. And deep in our heart, we all worry that what's going to happen when my health runs out. Mm-hmm. So what, I, what I'm trying to really, the point I'm trying to plead, what I'm trying to convey through my book here, the spiritual piece here is saying, don't give up on hope because you can actually, working off of the infinity principle around health, you simply have to, cultivate health and it's an evolving and growth mindset that we want to have and that um, you're not going to run out of it just because you've had accidents and antibiotics and traumas and genetic dispositions or other such conditions simply consider each day as an a canvas of an artist and the lifestyle practices are like colors and every day paint your most beautiful picture, your most beautiful image. And that is it. Every day, maximize your ability to stay healthy. And you will become more and more healthy because as per the infinity principle, which is a spiritual reality, there is unbounded health within you. And these practices draw it out. So 
my hope was in writing this book that people don't give up on hope because my teacher had told me that um, hopelessness is a primary disease that precedes all diseases. We give up on ourselves. And then we don't want to just, in the name of an art, that word is very used, it's cliche, an art of this, an art of that. It's not just anything and everything. There are these timeless practices intelligently bound together with some healthy dose of do's and don'ts that have stood the test of time. They were relevant thousands of years ago. They were relevant in the middle. They are relevant today, and they'll be relevant tomorrow. And this is a rational, scientific art that I wanted to convey, but ultimately with the hope that people stop thinking that, oh, my God, I'm running out of my health cash. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Now, I have several questions for you here, Shania. One is that I understand the spiritual principles underneath Ayurveda being timeless, any generation in any place. But when we get into some of the methods and the herbs that are used, etc., and we're really taking what developed in a different geographic zone in a different time, and now here you are, the first member of your family coming to the Western world to teach, and we're adapting that science of Ayurveda and the methods to a Western culture. Do you think it can be just imported whole hog, if you will, or are there certain revisions that need to be made for it to blossom here in the Western world? What's amazing is that in the ancient days also, Ayurveda was mainstream medicine, not only in India, but a big part of Southeast Asia and, you know, Tibet and China and Japan. So it was traveling everywhere. And when you go to the ancient texts, they actually talk about adapting it to the climate and environment of different countries. They call it Desha, which means different land, and Kala, which means different time and seasons. So if you take the same Ayurveda knowledge and you go to Eskimo country, guess what? There is information there as to what are the universal principles and what would be the regional adaptations to it. So what I did was, so that's really great that the sages foresaw that this is not limited knowledge that belongs to one people who worship one God or eat one kind of food. This is from the beginning universal. It was from the beginning open for humanity. In fact, there was not only Ayurveda for humans, but there is Ashwaveda for horses, Vrikshaveda for trees. So Ayurveda was for everyone in all epochs of life. And when you read the book, the readers will find that, oh my God, yes, 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 this applies to me. Because the sages studied the human condition, which has essentially not changed, which is, you know, a continuum of experiences of body, senses, mind, and spirit. And they addressed it. They didn't address Indians or South Indians, or they didn't address people who live on this side of the Indus who eat the cumin and the turmeric. No, they talked about things that grow on higher altitudes or what grow in the ocean, what you can find near the river what you can find, you know, in the hot climate. Now, these are universals. 
So what I did in this book specifically was tailor this book, especially for my readers in America, because I live here and I want and I work with the people here for the last several decades. So I wanted to write for my people. So I took care of it. So I addressed the climate here and adaptations here. So it works and it's easy to adapt to. And it comes in built with those recommendations. Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about how this core teaching that you got from your grandfather, your guru, Baba, was not to lose hope and that hopelessness is the disease that precedes all symptoms. That's a quote from Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom. And when I read that quote, hopelessness is the disease that precedes all symptoms, I actually made a connection with the state of current affairs in our world, and particularly in terms of the environment. And people are beginning, many, to feel quite hopeless about climate change, about species extinction. And I wonder how you see that from an Ayurvedic standpoint and an infinity mindset, if you will, people who are so despairing right now and for good reason about the state of the world. Yeah, it's amazing that um, thousands of years ago, the Ayurvedic texts from first century BCE actually talk about environment and dharma and the human condition. So um, if they lose hope, if you lose hope with what's happening today in the world, in the world of environment, politics, and national and international um, situations that are developing, we're not going to be able to really influence the course of destiny. And much like when we develop symptoms of disease, if we lose hope quickly, that disease becomes very strengthened because we have already lost our power. We have already lost our ability to influence and change um, that we want. So therefore, I would say that when we look back at Ayurveda, then I have a lesson that I want to share with you. Thousands of years ago, uh, Charaka, one of the sages, writes, and I'm literally quoting from this very ancient text, Tammy, and it says that when there is adharma among the political leaders and nations and among the keepers of the nations, adharma means unrighteousness, then because of this, it does not rain in time or at all, or there is abnormal rainfall, the wind will not blow properly, that land will get affected and polluted, water reservoirs will get dried up, and the herbal medicines will give up their natural properties and acquire morbidity. Epidemics will break out because humans lost their dharma. So it's very interesting that thousands of years ago, they were connecting human ability to follow a just course of action or not, going out and influencing what happens to the planets in their orbit and seasons and changes. And then they plead for us to come back to the course of Dharma. 
I am working on a separate uh, writing around environment and dharma. But all I can share right now with our listeners would be to go back to Baba's wisdom and say, don't give up hope because many times our planet has been tested. Many times unrighteousness has taken over. Many times the reason has been tossed away for ego and interest and uh, evilness. But every time there is something sustainable, something beautiful that rises again and again, that is bigger than all of us. So now more than ever, Tammy, I tell my students, hold on to your knowingness of what is right and truthful and beautiful, because we can make a paradigm shift by who we are deep within us. But if we lose ourselves in the negativity, then we've already lost it. Now more than ever, now more than ever, the healthy ones have to come together and believe that anything is possible so that whatever is not working for us becomes very minimized Mm -hmm. from a paradigm perspective. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Shunya, in your book, Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom, you focus on many, many aspects of health, but I want to see if we can touch on just a few of them. First of all, there are three main areas that you address, sleep, diet, and sex. And I thought it was interesting that sex made it to the top of the list. It wasn't sleep, diet, and exercise, and sex is an aspect of exercise. Instead, sleep, diet, and sex. How did sex make it so high on the list? (laughs) Because the sages were having happy sex. I love it. These are my kind of sages. (laughs) Absolutely. My kind too. I think sex is such an integral part of our biological, physiological, emotional, and spiritual nature that the sages really wanted to hold that and give us the right parameters so that we don't burn ourselves out, but nor do we go into some morbid states of self-punishment. You know, Vedic spirituality, if you look at the sages who wrote the Vedas, they were all happily married or they had, you know, sexual partners. There was not this concept of, you know, extreme um, abstinence to prove a point, least of all a spiritual one. And uh, I like that. That is why in my lineage, too, we all are asked and, in fact, entreated upon to find partners, find love, and lead a full life and, uh, you know, and really be part of nature. So, therefore, sexuality had to be a part of Ayurveda. And because it was being addressed to the common person who, you know, finds uh, partners, um, often reproduces, you know, lives on to have a complete sexual cycle. 
till, you know, the late years of their life. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful teachings and beloved teachings and such gentle teachings, including talking about um, being sexual only with the one who respects you. I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when it comes to sleep, diet, and sex, we started off talking about sex. But what I want to know are what you think the key myths or misconceptions are that you would like to correct with Ayurvedic instructions. And I know this is a really big topic and that you'll only be able to hit some of the highlights. If we move to sleep and diet, what are the key misconceptions that you see that people have and the key Ayurvedic instructions? More than the misconceptions, I would say that when, um, when I came across Ayurveda, you know, we're all trying our best. We all have an inherent relationship with sleep, food, and sex, and we're just intuitive beings, and we all figure it out in some way. But when you read Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom, my book, and I bring forward the teachings of the ancient sages. More than misconception, I would say, Tammy, it gives us the right way to conceptualize what kind of relationship I would like to have with food, sleep, and sex. So it's a positive teaching, which actually has done research in the human being in interaction with nature and told us that, hey, Probably if you went to bed around 10 p.m. and tried to wake up any time before 6 a.m., that is the most optimum for your body and mind, and here is why. And then I take the time to elaborate why, because I didn't want to just give, you know, some couple of rules and expect everybody to follow it blindly. So then I explained it from Ayurvedic science perspective, I also quoted some relevant research in modern times to convey my point until I believe that the reader is happily convinced and actually has a transformation in their lifestyle and they reap the consequent benefit of that change. So, for example, in sleep, we often think that, you know, we can sleep in the daytime at any time after eating or before eating. When is the right time to take a nap? Say if you take a nap after you've eaten, what impact will it have in your digestion metabolism? And will you end up being more toxic as a result or, or less toxic? So these are some details that I found were not often discussed. And I abhor lists, do this, do that. I don't like just doing that. So there are all this gentle narrative discussion, gently persuading the listener into why the ancient sages who gave us Ayurveda, yoga, meditation, tantra, chakras, why they were not napping right after a meal, but instead walking 100 steps after a meal, what does that do to you? How do you, in interaction to your environment and physiology, how do you reciprocate to that eating? Do you just sit down and become go into inertia, or do you walk around and help digest that food with your movement? So these simple things have helped conceptualize and reframe our basic mundane activities, which we so take for granted. And I've had year after year of working with students, leading several clinics, where people make the simple changes 
and they notice that their blood pressures are dropping, cholesterol is clearing up, blood sugar is improved, depression lifts. So apparently there was some wisdom to all of this. Similarly in sex, for example, many people get tired after sexual activity. What is the ideal time to have sexual activity? When would be the best time? When, we, when does your sexual energy peak? What did the ancient sages have to say about it? And why do you think they say this? I love the whys. I love answering the whys. And, you know, and what was the deeper belief system behind these changes? And how can you accommodate it in your modern life, in your regular, you know, homes and family lives? And this way, when people read the Ayurveda lifestyle wisdom, they connect not only to Eastern wisdom, but they connect to much more mindfulness around the simple practices of sleeping or sexual activity or even food. In which season should be eating what? Um, in the nighttime should be a heavier meal or the daytime. In case you feel hungry but you don't want a full meal, what could be good snack options in a regular American home which are Ayurvedically approved and wonderful for your being. And the next morning when you get up, you'll be energized and not like feeling the taste in your mouth. So very simple things, but it requires a deep look into it. And what I found, Tammy, is that when people start employing pieces and parts of this wisdom into their life, they find a lot of physical energy that was trapped earlier physiologically gets released they feel just feel more creative and they just feel overall well-being that is hard to define but cannot be dismissed now shunya before i let you move on just to clarify because you asked some really interesting questions about sex back to this for a moment when is the best time to have sex ideally before uh, the partners go to bed uh-huh. um versus early in the morning, which is uh, a special time to meditate and be more in uh, creative solitude, communing with higher realities. Okay. Now, it sounds to me, since you don't like lists and check a bunch of boxes, you're not trying to impose something from the outside. You're trying to help guide people into something that is intuitive. And throughout Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom, you talk about the importance of aligning ourselves with nature and the cycles of nature. And I wonder if you can talk more about that as an underlying principle, if you will, that these other lifestyle recommendations come from. Absolutely. Um, just to preface what I'm about to tell you, I just want to say that Ayurveda lifestyle wisdom has the right amount of boxes and checklists but not without a discussion and a gentle exploration as to why we are providing that information. Um, so apparently, um, one thing that Ayurveda wants you to be really clear about is that your health or our health is not a static phenomena, but it is a product of a dynamic interaction with all of creation all of creation, the sun, the moon, the wind, play very special roles. And um, chronobiological rhythms evolve as a result of 
24-hour cycle when the Earth spins on its own axis, and also a 12-season rhythm because the Earth orbits around the sun. Now, this is a majestic adventure for all beings on planet Earth, and they all change the amount of food they need, whether they drop their leaves or they hold on to their leaves or whether the flowers will bloom or not bloom. So there's a lot of interaction going on between natural world and the cosmos. Well, Ayurveda wants to remind us that we are no different. We're not made of plastic. We too have to accept these rhythms. And if we can live according to these rhythms, then we would do wonderfully. And I had asked Baba, well, of course, if I and the lotus in the pond in my home, we are both natural creatures and we know what to do. But Baba smiled and said, no, because the lotus has not forgotten that it's a natural creature and it must respect Mother Nature. We have, we tend to forget. Hence, we need Ayurveda to remind us of how to live in those rhythms. And as a result, uh, in this teachings, in this book, I talk about how to construct and live an ideal 24-hour time period, when to wake up, when to sleep, when to have your biggest meal, what to cook in what season, what would be the ideal things to do in any season. And we have found again and again and again that once I give this knowledge to people who have a variety of ill health and suffering, mental, emotional, physical, I don't see them for many months. I just see them getting happier and happier in the audience that I'm, you know, addressing. And then once in a while, they'll come back to me and say, the knowledge of the rhythm and working in cooperation with nature and not against it has set me free, Shunya. Thank you. So apparently, Tammy, nature has some lessons for us. The Ayurveda sages captured it beautifully with detailed instruction. Baba made it alive for me, and I lived that life. And now in this book, I bring it for everyone because I care, because this knowledge set me free, and I want others to walk in an expansive way too. You know, Shunya, when you talk about the knowledge of these rhythms of the natural world, I'm reminded of times when I've been on a retreat by myself, very tuned in to when the sun rises and sets, and very much connected to the rhythms of the natural world. And I compare that to how it's like when I'm deeply engaged in working, when I'm not particularly tuned in to when the sun is setting necessarily. I'm tuned into deadlines that I have. And I think that many people, their priority, if you will, of what is setting their agenda for any given day, week, or month is not what are the rhythms going on in the natural world. They're what are my work responsibilities or family responsibilities. Do you feel that here in the West, we've invested in a set of priorities that are keeping us away from Ayurveda lifestyle wisdom? And how do we change that investment? I'm so grateful that you asked me this question because this takes me back to my favorite theme of presence versus productivity. And one of the reasons we have invested so much in the work we do and, you know, being on our laptop or 
you know, checking out what's happening in the world versus ourselves and being in tune with nature is because we're checked out. And we also believe that somehow to be productive, we really have to, you know, somehow not check in with ourselves. But throughout this book, I plead the case that by leading a life that is to a large extent guided by Ayurveda's lifestyle wisdom, you shall be cultivating and connecting with presence, a spiritual presence within you and in this universe from time to time to time. And this will only enhance your productivity. This shall make you even more creative. And that's why even whether I'm in a board meeting, whether I'm addressing an audience of thousands of you know, people who are looking up to me as a speaker and a teacher, I have a secret. And my secret is that I lead a life which is almost nourishing me, which is, which is, which is polishing me, which is perfecting me to do what I do in the world. But in my private moments of cultivated mindfulness, I actually have an art of lifestyle to go back to. When I, for example, apply oil on my body, warmed oil, and I'm touching every part of my being from my foot to my head, and later I have a class that I have to teach, that 10 minutes of oiling and loving myself and connecting with nature through that warmed oil and remembering that this is what I'm doing as an act of self-love and active uh, process of nourishing my health, it strengthens me. I don't know what happens to me, but when I walk out into that classroom, I don't lose myself. I don't pander to the classroom. I'm completely me, as if I'm alone with that oil still on my body. I am in my lifestyle, and my life has a style which supports me and my presence. And I think it's a myth that somehow presence and productivity don't work together. We are doing it again and again, you and I bringing them together. Mm-hmm. And that's why our life has changed. Mm-hmm. Is there a certain kind of oil you put on yourself, Shanya? I notice I feel attracted to that. What kind of oil are you using? So I wrote so, I wrote so much about sesame oil. It's the uncooked crude sesame oil known as tilatelam in Sanskrit, in the book, that anybody would fall in love with it and you warm it. And it is it balances all the energies. And I warmly cook it in a crock pot. So it's waiting for me when I go into the you know, area where I want to oil my body. And then the strokes are really gentle. Like I am just caressing myself. So the name is massage. But really I'm self-caressing and I apply oil to every part of my body and then I take a hot shower. And instead of soap, I have mentioned many kinds of, uh, you know, natural soap substitutes, like there is a lentil called mung lentil. So we can get mung lentil flour, and we can use that. And as you smell the mung lentil, as you are scrubbing that oil on your face, you will feel like you're standing in a forest. Mm. And all acne and blemishes will settle down. You know, I write about Ayurveda and talking about sesame oil and monk flower, and I'm having a spiritual experience right now. Because presence does not live in the mind with its ideas, thoughts, concepts. It lives 
and expresses itself in the here and now through the smells, textures, tastes. So I believe that when I, Ayurveda has helped me be in my body more, you know, and I love that. I just love being part of that ritualistic life where I'm a custodian of my health. I noticed, Shunya, that I feel drawn to like being a guest in your house where the crock pot's waiting for me and the food's being cooked. But then this is a question here, and I'm not trying to be glib or anything, but when I notice of setting all of this up for myself, I feel a little intimidated. Like, will I find the right kind of oil? Will I not start a fire in my house? Will I know how to cook with this type of special flour? Is it available in a regular grocery store? I just feel a little overwhelmed by trying to make this practical in my own life. Right. And that is why I have asked that to the readers that they kind of, you know, just, it's a whole lifestyle. It takes a whole life to implement it. So Ayurveda lifestyle is like a tree, which has beautiful fruit, but you're not being asked to eat the entire tree. Just nibble at a fruit at a time. And then the book contains, you know, I've been teaching, um, you know, people in America for the longest time now. So we have details on where can you buy it. Most of the things can be bought online now. There is nothing so foreign and exotic that you can't find it on an easy online search engine. That I can promise you. Yeah. I don't want to create, I don't want to create the visage of an exotic world that you can only find by taking a plane ride to India. That is an antithesis to what I'm trying to do. I care for the average American family here that I work with. This has become, India was my, uh, you know, where I learned and this is where I teach and I groom students to become teachers in the future and everything is available here. And we have, there are many common ingredients that were also known to Native American mystics and shamans and teachers. But the uniqueness is in the how, the knowledge. Like sesame oil has been known to many cultures, but what does Ayurveda do with it, you know? So this will all be very easy. The book has been broken down into very easy chapters from morning to night, and you can literally dive into whichever area seems to call you. Somebody wants happier sleep, go read the sleep chapter. There's lots of resources for you. So that's what I tried, Tammy, so that my conversation, um, culture, language barriers, cultural barriers should not come in the way of great knowledge mm-hmm. spreading to each and every home. Mm-hmm. You know, Shunya, one of the things I'm reflecting on as we're talking is how our conversation has touched on a depth of spiritual realization coming from shunya, from emptiness, from zero, this infinity mindset, into very serious details about health and diet and sleep recommendations and a psychological attitude of not losing hope, and how sometimes people think about health as one thing, and spirituality as something different, and psychology as something yet different again, and how there's this effortless weaving together, if you will, in the Vedic approach. And I wonder if you can address that, this kind of seamless integration. 
Indeed. Um, that was the beauty of the Vedic approach that I really have become a champion for, where it does not oblige us to separate different parts of ourselves. Again and again, there is a calling of an integrity approach, uh, a unity approach. And that is why I've written about that in the book too, actually, Tammy, about we don't have to take our spirit to the church and the mind to the psychiatrist and our body to the doctor. Ayurveda lifestyle will address all aspects of our being. In fact, thousands of years ago, um, Ayurveda did a very bold thing. It, it defined the, the living subject as four-dimensional, Sharirindriya Satvatma. It said that the subject, you, the reader, who's going to benefit from Ayurveda, we're not going to address just your body. Of course we will, but you have senses too, which sometimes get tired, and we want to make sure your senses are rested too. And not just that's not enough too, also your mind. Your mind should be optimally functioning, balanced, calm. And finally, your spirit. Are you feeling freedom? Are you hopeful? Are you in touch with your emptiness? Are you flying? Are you recreating yourself in your daily life? All of these became an important subject matter for Ayurveda. And that is why it seems that when people feel invisible in uh, other systems of medicine, which have a deep obligation towards the material dimension of the existence, or they feel like, yeah, my spirituality is being addressed, but my bodily needs are being ignored. Somewhere Ayurveda is that unique system that sees us at once all together, and we don't have to be apologetic for anything. That is why I, as a teacher, I'm a spiritual teacher. I teach about self-realization and self-actualization. And then within a minute, I can talk about sleep patterns and digestion. And I don't feel apologetic. I feel I'm very well equipped to address the human being and the multiple dimensions of existence. And I have the knowledge that has been time-tested, that is for all beings, that was generously shared by the sages for the benefit of all. And it teaches us compassion. Do you know that <laughs> it is beautiful, Tammy, and I've touched upon it in the book about how a charitable state of mind, a generous state of mind, uh, a state of selfless service, and a state of forgiveness and compassion, all of these things decorate our health and move us towards greater well-being. Only Ayurveda could do that, all in one stroke. Shunya, I'd love to bring our conversation all the way into a circle and end our conversation the way we began, which was talking about your grandfather and the mantle, if you will, that you received from him and your family lineage. And I wonder if you could share with us a story about you and Baba together. That's a story that's a real touchstone for you, if you will, something that you draw strength from. I have so many stories. I'm wondering which one to share with you. 
I think uh, what Baba what Baba shared with me was something very powerful and poignant when my mother passed away at 10. I was 10. And she passed away because she had a congenital heart condition and apparently she came for a short lifetime on earth. Enough. Enough to bother me and enough to fill me with mothering capacities. I was sitting by her uh, dead body and uh, some rituals were going on and Baba sat with me and he held a clay pot. Um, clay utensils were common in India. They're still common today. And then he broke the pot in front of me. And he said, the space that was contained in the clay pot is no longer contained by the clay pot. It still exists. In the same way, your mother, who was contained in that one body, now exists everywhere. She's Mother Nature now. That quiet teaching and that visual seeing of the space that was stuffed inside a clay pot released to become part of the greatest pot, that infinity pot, really made me fearless of death. And it has allowed me to reinvent myself again and again and become a healer by touching very deep chords within me. I think that teaching next to the still body of my mother and knowing that while death is certain, spirit is the only truth, made a very big impact on me. And I started connecting with that, that essence, which sometimes comes inside a pot and becomes the animated spirit, but is everywhere. I think that is what I remember. I wonder if it is too grave to share on the podcast. No, not at all. Not at all. And you made a strong statement in telling the story that this demonstration and illustration by Baba in your life when you were just 10 years old has led to a certain fearlessness in the face of death. I think a lot of people wish they felt fearless in the face of death, but they don't, actually. They have quite a lot of fear. So I think that anything you can say or do to help people reckon with their own fear around death is very useful. Yes, thank you. I think it helps if the healer, the teacher, has had close encounters with death and so really knows that life and death are really just uh, opposite sides of the same energy of spirit and uh, can walk with a certain grace. And I think I owe all of this to my very out-of-box teacher that has created me an out-of-the-box teacher and personality. My students still cannot predict me, and yet I have a stability that goes back thousands of years. And uh, with that same uh, conviction, in a fearless conviction in health, is why I wrote this book. I didn't just write the book because I had to write a book. I wrote the book because I wanted to convey my conviction 
and uh, people who study with me read my writings and actually take the time to go through my writings because they're not just information. It's a transmission. It's a communication from my soul to their soul. They feel transformed. I have miracles happening all around me, but I don't think I trace those miracles to me. I trace them to the truth of spirit, consciousness, and infinity. And I just got connected with it. And you know, Tammy, um, and probably this is a good time to share as any that <laughs> there was a time in my teenage years when I couldn't walk for a while. And uh, later, much later, we found out that I have a genetic condition that doesn't want me to walk and would kind of like me to be in a wheelchair. And, uh, you know. What genetic condition is that? It's, it's a condition that causes inflammation throughout my, you know, body. Uh-huh. And, uh, would like to have me in a wheelchair. And there was a while, for a short while, when I could not walk. And there was a short while when I also did not want to follow Ayurveda. And I think that's really important for people to know because I don't want to just come across as this wonderful person who was born in this wonderful family with like, you know, an Ayurveda (laughs) coated spoon. I, as a teenager, uh, as all teenagers, wanted to not have to work on my health, not want to touch my infinity, and not want to have to do with anything sacred whatsoever. And that confirmed that I'm a regular human being. But similarly at that time, interestingly, the inflammation went up so much, I couldn't walk, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't cough, I couldn't lift a spoon. And um, once again, my Baba didn't push it on me because he said that a forgetting of the way is necessary to really then recognize the way. And then when I went up to him, Baba said, are you ready? I said, I'm ready. He helped me once again with oiling my body and taking warm foods and the right kind of foods that reduce inflammation, uh, which is known as, you know, vata balancing foods mentioned in the book. My body came back to normal. I'm walking, and recently I started running. And uh, I seem to be going against my age. My health seems to be improving more every day. And that doesn't mean that I won't follow the natural law of decay or aging or that I won't leave this spot called the Shunya body and become part of that great space and expanse of spirit. But probably I'll do it in a very healthy way and the best way that's right for me. Occasionally, I get a twinge here or there, but then I know what I can do. And I become even more inward and more connected to my lifestyle and to my spirit. And my health and consciousness, they seem to, you know, awaken others and stay awakened. That's my path right now, currently, reporting as of today. I've been speaking with Acharya Shunya, and I want to thank you so much for sharing this entire conversation and then about your own health challenges from your teenage years as well that have really informed your own journey with Ayurveda lifestyle wisdom. Thank you for adding that in. I think it was quite helpful and illuminating. 
And you know, out of the box, being an out of the box spiritual teacher, that works just fine for me and just fine for Sounds True. I think honestly that's what we need in our time. People who will walk tall, walk free, and be as self-revealing and straightforward as you've been. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Acharya Shunya. She's written a new book called Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom, a complete prescription to optimize your health, prevent disease, and live with vitality and joy. It's a very rich and comprehensive book that covers everything from sleep to the daily clock, 24-hour clock of health, diet. There are recipes in the book, as well as sections on elimination and dental health, and all kinds of Ayurvedic instructions, all rooted in this deeper spiritual view of an infinity mindset. Shunya, I've really enjoyed talking to you. You inspire me. Thank you. Thank you. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.